So the big question is this. How do most agents who don't have access to the secrets that the top agents hoard to themselves grow and prosper in today's real estate environment? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. I'm Pat Hyben, and welcome to Real Estate Rockstars. And now, for the review of the day. Thank you so much for your podcast. As a future agent embarking on a career change, your podcast has given me invaluable insights and helps to motivate me to take the market in my area by storm. Five stars, Jonathan West. Keep the comments coming, guys. I love them. And remember, I eat feedback for breakfast, so give me a one-star review if you want. Or a five-star review if you want. I don't care. And the more reviews we get, the better guests we get. So please, subscribe first and then leave us a review or wherever you're listening. This episode is brought to you in full by Rebus University, the future of real estate training. Go now to www.rebusuniversity.com and use the coupon code ROCK for 20% off your first course. Double your commissions now with Rebus University. Okay, Rockstar Nation, I have a super guest today. We're quite privileged to have Mr. Clayton Morris. You may have heard of him. You may have seen him. used to be on Fox and Friends in the morning, and uh, he was all over television, and he decided to step out of TV and become a full-time real estate investor and help other people with real estate. And we're going to talk about today's real estate industry, the amount of investors out there, how to work with investors as an agent, and why you should be or should not be buying rental properties yourself. So Clayton, welcome to Real Estate Rockstars. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's a real treat to be here. Hey, why don't you give everybody a little rundown on yourself so they can get to know you better? Well, I spent a lot of time in TV. You know, as a kid, I used to sneak downstairs when my parents thought I was in bed and I would uh, put on Johnny Carson and David Letterman, who was my hero, and watched late night television and thought I wanted to be in television. I loved the medium of broadcast television, being able to, I loved when David Letterman would, his, his you know, cue card guy would spill coffee on the set and he would have them spin the camera around and spend five minutes making fun of his cue card guy. And I thought, wow, he's breaking down this, you know, this fourth wall of TV and talking right. We get to see what's going on behind the scenes. And I just love that. So I, I, after college, moved out to Los Angeles and became a producer at a local Fox affiliate in, 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 uh, in Los Angeles on a good, good day LA morning show. And they said, look, Clayton, if you want to get on television and do what you know you want to do, you've got to leave. You can't start in the number two market in the country and suddenly be on TV. So moved to Montana. I was a political reporter for CBS News covering the governor. Moved all over the country in the TV business, West Virginia, Virginia, Florida, Ohio, um, just putting in my dues and making no money. And the whole time I was doing that, though, I was watching, I was spending money on rent. You know, I lived in C-class neighborhoods and, and B-class neighborhoods and, you know, D-class neighborhoods. And I lived, but I was always sending rent to somebody, right? Somebody was, these apartments were always full of people. And I was sending rent to somebody else and somebody else was making money off of me. Um, and I didn't have a place, I couldn't buy a place yet. So I lived all over the country and I, I that's when I 
started to smell the sense of real estate. I didn't quite understand it, but right after college, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I think in 1999, like right after it came out or 2000. And I grew up with all these negative associations with money. You know, money doesn't grow on trees. We're not the Rockefellers. We can't afford that. So for me, I had to spend the next 20 years of my life, Pat, like just unlearning all of the crap that I had been built up in my head from childhood, thinking that money shouldn't come to me. I've spent the last 20 years of my life battling that and trying to teach others how to wrap their head around thinking of abundance in their life. That's awesome. I, I, I love that. Uh, you know, everything you just said, a couple of things come to mind, like we're not the Rockefellers. I mean, you know, what an affirmation that is, right? As saying that. And the weird part about it is I say that, to, I don't say that exact quote, but like my kids are, you know, constantly like reaching out for like 12 cents here and four cents here. And that, that's what it feels like to me. And, and I say things like, what do you, you know, similar to that, right? And that, and you made me think, man, that's an affirmation, right? I probably should just say no. <laughs> you know, you need to learn money yourself rather than a cliche that is also an affirmation because it may be limiting me and how rich I actually become. Well, I have to say it is probably my greatest challenge in my life is my, the memes associated with not making money or that money shouldn't come to me. And it all came from those things from my parents. I mean, bottom line. So I always say to crowds when I'm talking to a group of you know, folks, I'll say, look, it's very important about the way in which we talk to money, talk about money with our children. Um, because I don't want my kids to ever fear money. I want them to have a healthy understanding of and a financial education around money. You know, there's a remarkable segment of the population, and I don't have this, the number right in front of me, but it's a ridiculous number of unbanked families. When I say unbanked, that means that the family doesn't even have a bank account. Now, the children who grow up in unbanked families, watching their parents go to a payday lending or those types of places to make money, they're setting up themselves up for absolute failure. Uh, very rarely does a child come out of an unbanked family that is successful. It's just a matter of fact. They don't see their, ch they don't see their parents managing money. Parents are the gateway to financial education and financial freedom. And they're not learning it in the schools. I mean, I don't know about you, Pat, but I certainly didn't. The only thing I learned in school about money was how to balance a checkbook. I remember that ninth grade, we had to balance a checkbook. We had to carry the numbers from one ledger to the next. That's all we did. And we're taught that you get a job, you make money through an employer, and after you pay taxes, you have some money to spend, and you, pay, and you, and a, you buy the house you live in, and you live in the house, and that's your asset. And that's a, that is just a horrible <laughs> – the schools are just – I mean, it's a really terrible situation. And uh, so I think it's very important about the way in which we talk to our children about money. I love that. And I love your, I was on your website earlier and your, uh, your Johnny Carson thing reminded me of this. You, and this has nothing to do, or maybe it has everything to do with money, but I wanted to bring it up. Um, you know, you talked about the episode with Warren Zevon, who was, you know, we most famously known for Werewolves in London song. And he died in a couple of days or, mo or a month or so before he died. Uh, he came on uh, Johnny Carson or David Letterman, one of those shows. And uh, t tell us what you said on your website. Yeah, so he was on Letterman, and Letterman was a huge fan of his music. And, uh, you know, Letterman's big regret is that he wasn't a better friend to him towards the end. But 
it was terminal cancer. It was just like riddling his entire body with Warren Zevon. And he was on there with a new album. And, you know, David Letterman just asked him very, in a great way. He has such a great way of asking these questions, you know, but, you know, how are you doing? And what is your perspective on life now that you know it's coming to an end, you know? And Warren Zevon said, said and he just, his simple little answer, and it stuck with David Letterman throughout that episode and through years to come. But he just, his, he answered with, you know what? You just got to enjoy every sandwich. And it seems like such a simple quote, but it really is the truth. We try to complicate things. But instead of sitting there and being on your phone or not paying attention to your kids when they're sitting there wanting to play Go Fish with you and you're on your phone, you're not enjoying every sandwich. And guess what? What if you had a month to live? what is it all for? You know, you're sitting there looking at something on your phone, uh, an email that came in, some pseudo fire that needs to be put out. It's all garbage. <laughs> you know, and in the end, it doesn't matter as long as you're living in the moment and spending those most important moments. And so I really, I'm passionate about lifestyle. People want to talk about real estate. I like real estate, but it's really about what kind of lifestyle are you looking to create for yourself? Not how many houses or roofs you, you know, you've got in your portfolio. Yeah, that's brilliant, buddy. That's I appreciate you sharing that beauty there, because because uh, you're 100 percent right. I mean, it, it, Warren Zevon was lucky, right? Because he he was lucky in that he knew, you know, he was going to die. Um, you or me, literally, we could hang up this podcast uh, episode, and uh, the Grim Reaper could tap us on the shoulder. You know, we just don't. You don't know. There's plenty of people that die. Nobody really. Most people don't know they're going to die. So, I love that, and and I love how you relate real estate and the owning of real estate to lifestyle. I know I've lived that in my own life, whereas, you know, I quit being a real estate agent, just like you quit being a talk show host, right? To basically just live off the passive income from my real estate investments. And it allowed me to move to South Carolina and live on the beach and, and just have it, you know, it's, it's almost December 1st and it's like 75 degrees a day. And I rode my bike this morning outside of my house and, you know, rode like 10 miles on the beach and then came back and then did this podcast for you. It's just a better lifestyle. And I would not have that without owning real estate. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that. Like what, I, I think there's a lot of real estate agents that want to be able to have a future where they can control their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. But being a real estate agent is a completely 100% uncontrolled job right? You're like pulled. You have basically very little control because you're at the mercy of, of trading time for money with clients. Um, so talk to me, what advice would you have for all the real estate agents listening who want to get into a, a better lifestyle? Well, I've got a lot. I hope you're, and I hope your audience has a pen and paper ready to go because there's a couple of key takeaways that I have for real estate agents. Now, my wife is a real estate agent. The reason she got her real estate license was to help our investing. So now, put that, wrap your head around that for a moment, right? She didn't get it to help clients. She got it for herself, for us. And she got it so that she could enable our portfolio to grow our portfolio. As a member of the Rockstar Nation, you may have noticed that every guest that comes on the show now is required to bring with them a free tool, an item of utility that real estate agents can use to drastically increase their sales and profits. 
Some of the things that have been brought have been ebooks, forms, reports, negotiating techniques, hiring guides, postcards, checklists, open house secrets, newsletters that are sent out, sphere of influence forms, referral request forms, and the list goes on and on. If you would like to get this free toolbox full of items of utility, simply go to hybendigital.com backslash toolbox. That's hybendigital.com backslash toolbox or simply text toolbox to 444-999. That's toolbox to 444-999. My dad got his real estate license to work as a salary trans, you know, transactional business. He never really saw investing. He didn't understand it. You know, the rich dad, poor dad philosophy. He just thought of it as a paycheck and to help clients. My wife saw it completely differently. So I'd ask your audience, how do you see it? Is it a transactional business for you? Are you waiting for that 3% commission or whatever it is at the closing? And you're going to take that cash and pay some bills. Or are you going to take that cash and reinvest it? Or even more importantly, are you going to take those leads that come into the office that no one else has seen yet and jump on them? Partnering with some private lenders, getting some cash in, in, your, in your bank account and or for you then to be able to pick up these properties. I spoke to a group recently of a couple hundred uh, agents and investors and I said, a lot of them were there. They, they don't own any rental properties, but they're helping other people become wealthy, Right. They're the ones that have access. Exactly. They're the ones that have access to the deals, right? And they are now able to take that, those leaves and they're handing them out to somebody else. They're making somebody else profitable. So I said to this group, you know, you guys are the finders, right? You're out there as a finder finding this, you know, and you have the opportunity to take those deals and turn them into being a keeper, Keep them. Finders keepers, right? Losers weepers. Find the deals. Keep them yourself. No one else has access to these deals. So many people in the real estate world want those pocket listings that come into agents, right? That come into the office that people kick them around the office because no one knows what to do with them. Maybe it needs 30K in rehab and they're just too, they don't want to list it because they don't want to do an open house in this place that needs all new floors and the walls are caving in or whatever it is. Get creative about it. Start to see real opportunities in these deals that are sitting in your hand literally every day. That's why investors work with uh, realtors on a regular basis to find deals. So um, another thing about that is I spoke with a, a friend who, he's a millionaire real estate investor. He's about $7 million in real estate. He's retiring now and selling off a large portion of his portfolio. So I just picked up 10 properties out of his portfolio and, that I'm keeping. And, and he told me a marvelous story that I think your audience would love as real estate agents. He started out as a real estate agent years ago in 1969. And one Sunday, he wanted to go down the shore. He was a young guy, 23 years old. He wanted to go down the shore with his friends in New Jersey, and everyone goes down the shore you know, on the weekend. He was working with a real estate investor who said, hey, Richard, uh, I want to go see this investment property on Sunday at 1 o'clock. He said, Sunday at 1 o'clock? Come on be down the shore like you I'll right down the beach you know in South Carolina I want to be at the beach um, and he said nope it's got to be one o'clock on Sunday so he gives up his entire weekend this real estate agent did to meet with this investor on a Sunday at one o'clock well he's standing there at the property now it's 1969 there's no cell phones it's one <laughs> o'clock it's 115 it's 130 it's 145 in the afternoon it's two o'clock 
He's like, what in the world? I've been here an hour now. Where, where is this guy? So he calls, he gets a hold of him, and he says, oh, what? Uh, my wife didn't tell you I'm not interested in that property anymore. And he said, right then, I said, that's it. I'm done being a real estate agent. I'm going to become a real estate investor. I'm not going to be wrapped around somebody else's finger anymore. This guy had me wrapped around his finger all weekend. I'm not going to do it anymore. Right. Any, any job, right? Any right. job you're beholden to somebody else. I don't care what industry you're in, right? You're, mm -hmm. You have a master in, in unless you're an entrepreneur or an investor, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, you can use your real estate agent license to both help other people, right? Buy the properties you find, you know, find the properties that you're able to get rehab them yourself or work with private lenders, do something special with those properties, buy and hold them. However, become, you know, give fractional ownership to 10 other individuals who you have in that network. You own 30% and you bring a bunch of group together and you buy five properties together. Who knows, right? You come across deals all the time, get creative. Um, and then, you know, flip a property, sell it, use your license to sell it. So you're not having to pay a huge, uh, you know, commission to somebody else. So there's so many ways to utilize that, your real estate license. Yes, you can help other people. That doesn't mean you've you got to stop, get, you know, get rid of clients all of a sudden, but start to see the gems and start to build your own wealth. Okay. So, so let's talk to some specifics here. What, what do you recommend as far as calculations to know if something is a good buy or not? Well, on a single, so for me, the rule of thumb on a single family, right? If, if it proper, in my mind, this is my opinion, but once you go beyond $150,000 for a single family home, the rent value does not keep up with the value of the house, right? Simple math. And here's how, here's what I mean if you're confused by that. Not you, Pat, but you, the larger you. No, this is good. Yeah, keep going. So let's say, you know, it's $150,000 house, but it rents for a thousand bucks a month. Mm. Round numbers. Well, if the house was worth two hundred thousand, in your brain you think, okay, it's probably going to rent for twelve fifty a month, mm, but not quite, right? What ends up happening is that anything above one hundred and fifty goes up a smaller amount. It's not commensurate with the price tag. So now you you bought a two hundred thousand dollar home. Guess what? The rent might be I don't know eleven hundred a month, maybe one thousand seventy five. I mean, and then you go up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in value for a single family home. Do you think the rent would be two grand, right? A month. Uh-uh, not so fast. Or, you know, it's not gonna happen. It's gonna end up going up maybe a, another hundred bucks. So my cutoff, I don't buy anything that high, that expensive. I try to stay well under a hundred for single families, and most of my sweet spot is around fifty, sixty, even forty-five thousand. That's my sweet spot for properties. Um Cash flow seven eight hundred a month. I all I care about is ROI. I just want return on investment. My mentor years ago taught me the same thing. Stick with C class B minus neighborhoods. Those are the tenants that have the least amount of problems. They stay consistently working and consistently cash flowing your properties. You have the biggest trouble in A class neighborhoods, and so that okay, tended. So, so let me slow this down. And so essentially, what he's saying, and I'll say it, and you know, in case it's not politically correct, but he's saying. He's saying, you know, stay out of obviously buying something for a million dollars to rent out or half a million dollars. I talked to a guy yesterday and a real estate investor that was renting a million dollar house for four grand a month, which the numbers on that, on, on what you would buy absolutely <laughs> don't work. And that's, and that's the reason he was renting. He was a real estate investor. He owned like 80 houses, but he rented for his primary. Now, right. I think you're saying, so stay away from that. Stay as low as you can, but at the same time, 
you're really looking for blue collar, right? You're, that that is who you want. You want you're you're not going so low as to say do section eight. You're not going so low so um, high as to say white collar, um, but you're just saying blue collar people with steady jobs that probably aren't going to want to move. 100%. Although I do have some Section 8 tenants and they tend to be great. You know why? The city does their inspections. Um, it's consistent cash flow and they tend to stay for a long time. So I, I don't mind Section 8 at all. You just have to know what you're doing and you have to have, you have to jump through a, a few hoops and hurdles on the first, on the front end. That is to make sure that your property qualifies for Section 8 and the city comes out and inspects it and signs off on it. So I'm not having a problem with that. Real quick, I want to go back to your guy that had a million dollar property he was yeah, renting. Yeah, go for it. So he's paying four grand a month. The owner of that million dollar property is making a 0.02% return. He's making nothing uh, on the ROI of that property uh, on that million dollar investment vehicle that he has. So that guy who's renting it is, is really smart. He has 80 properties that he can cash flow and he doesn't own the home he lives in. He lives in a dream home, right? On Malibu or wherever it is, it doesn't matter because he's not paying for the taxes. He's not paying for the upkeep of that property. His 80 properties are producing consistent cash flow and are able to pay for his lifestyle. So I, I love that. Anyway. As a member of the Rockstar Nation, you may have noticed that every guest that comes on the show now is required to bring with them a free tool, an item of utility that real estate agents can use to drastically increase their sales and profits. Some of the things that have been brought have been ebooks, forms, reports, negotiating techniques, hiring guides, postcards, checklists, open house secrets newsletters that are sent out, sphere of influence forms, referral request forms, and the list goes on and on. If you would like to get this free toolbox full of items of utility, simply go to hybendigital.com backslash toolbox. That's hybendigital.com backslash toolbox or simply text toolbox to 444-999. That's toolbox to 444-999. That's good stuff. And, and the Section 8 thing, what I, what I do with my Section 8s is I always buy my Section 8s in a blue-collar neighborhood where it's the only Section 8 on the street hmm. so that people, when it sells, people think, oh, damn, you know, a Section 8 moved in. I want the neighbors to be upset, not to be upset because I, I'm putting bad tenants in there, just to be upset with the concept that, I, that I'm a landlord putting a Section 8 in their neighborhood because that means that I'm going to be able to resell it. I think where people make mistakes with Section 8 is there'll be an entire street of Section 8 properties and they'll buy one there. And then if, if, if anything changes in the market or maybe one investor dies who owns six houses on the street and his estate sells those six houses, it just crushes the values of everybody on the street because they control the market. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean, I buy, I think, to do the same exact thing. I mean, I like... I like blue collar neighborhoods where when you drive down the afternoon, everyone's, um, you know, everyone's, uh, everyone's at work. I was thinking everyone's asleep. That's because I, I have a head cold. <laughs> I'm like, excuse my, uh, excuse my cough medicine. Um, no, everyone's at work. You know, I drive, I'll, I'll be in one of my markets uh, next week with my team. 
um, in the Midwest. And, you know, hey, I drive down the streets and everyone's, everyone's at work, you know, and those that aren't are maybe on social security and maybe, you know, had their hip replaced or something like that, but it's quiet. And it's not, you know, it's, it, and it's, it, it's, I, I've been in um, war zone neighborhoods, you know, in New Jersey and in parts of Newark and these other places. I, I would never, it, it, the places I invest look nothing like that. This, by the way, is how most of America actually works and lives. They live in, you know, thousand square foot homes, three bedroom, one bath, three bedroom, two bath. And they've got a yard and a driveway and they work at the local hospital. They work at the local school. They work at the post office. These are jobs that stay consistently cash flowing during a recession. They're paying $750 a month. What are you going to, during a recession, drop their rent to $725 a month? No, it doesn't happen. In anything, these people retain their jobs. It's the A-class neighborhoods that end up losing their jobs. It, was, it happened in Detroit. It happened in New York. It happened all over the place. The people that are the managers that, may, that live in the $300,000 home, the middle, you know, the, those manager positions, those are the people that lost their jobs. Those are the people that were out of luck, not the people that were consistently cash flowing these blue-collar neighborhoods. So I'm a history fan. I was a history major in college. If you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. Um, in the case of investing in these types of neighborhoods, there's consistent consistent rental steadiness in these areas, uh, even during downturns. So, so let's talk about that. I love, I love the concept of history. So, you know, a lot of people are saying, Hey, you know, we're at the end of a cycle here, you know, history is going to repeat itself. Or if you look at history, you look at seven year cycles with real estate, answer that. If someone's driving down the road, listening to this Mm -hmm. and they have a limiting belief about maybe buying something today. Well, I'd say, the entire country has so many markets. So I, I have to say where, because there's you know, generalizations about the market. I always, I, I think, are, when I see these national news stories on TV, I just laugh because they're so misplaced. Are you talking about San Francisco and downtown San Francisco? Yeah, okay. I could see values fluctuating down because the tech sector is not so interested in moving to San Francisco like they were last year, these mood swings there. Okay, I see that. Maybe these high-rise commercial developers in Brooklyn aren't building these high-rises anymore because there wasn't as high of a demand for, for $5,000 a month rent because now those same millennials that used to pay five grand a month in rent in Brooklyn are deciding that they want to move out to the suburbs and get their first property. So these five, this like five-year cycle, it, t- it you know, takes that long for them to build these buildings, right? So these high-rises that popped up in Brooklyn are as a result of few, four or five years ago where there was an incredible demand where we saw these news stories. Guess what? Millennials aren't buying homes. They want to rent. They want to be where the action is, right? So what did all these commercial developers do? They just went like a glut and started building all these high-rise apartments, you know, in in Miami and and other places, downtown Omaha, Nebraska. Well, guess what? That's an A-class property, an A-class tenant paying $4,500 a month to have a pool and a bar and they can hang out with their friends. They get all their laundry done for them. That's not the kind of thing I rent. That's not the kind of thing I buy. So again, different markets. If you are the type of person that likes to invest in multi-million dollar apartment condo complexes in Manhattan, yeah, I'd be worried. I'd be a little nervous about this because guess what? Millennials are now saying, we want to buy our own place. We want to buy a four-bedroom place, um, new construction. So you're seeing new construction pick up again in the, in the A-class neighborhoods for millennial buyers, first-time home buyers. We see that across Texas. We see that. So you see this sort of little fluctuation here, right, between these high-class apartments down to these uh, now to millennials buying for the first time. It's a little give and take. But again, what's in the middle there? 
it's those C-class neighborhoods, there's not much movement. There's an incredible demand for rent in C-class neighborhoods in low to middle income neighborhoods. And those haven't changed. Nothing's different about them, quite honestly. There's just more of a demand for it. Yeah, absolutely. Let me shift gears a little bit and get your opinion on something because, you, you, I mean, you, you've got great thoughts. Uh, what, uh, what's your opinion of micro housing and micro apartments? And is this a trend that's going to stay or do you think it's just a fluke thing? Uh, I think it's definitely a fluke thing. I mean, I don't know. Anytime an HGTV show pops up around tiny houses, you know, I think it's, uh, although, you know, hey, more and more people are buying these like doomsday bunkers out in the middle of the desert. So people are buying these old missile silos and things. But I think sort of large scale, if you're thinking about buying land in order to lease it to a tiny house person that's going to put it on the back of a flatbed, you know, trailer and move it around from vacant land to vacant land. I think that's a very niche market. I don't think, you know, it's not something that I would say, you know what, honey, guess what we're doing now? We're investing in tiny house market. <laughs> you know, um, I, I'm fascinated by it. And it's certainly as raw land, so much raw land is available and there's that movement for people to own and, you know, and, and buy and sell raw land. Um, it's an opportunity for you to lease it to somebody who wants that and to, to market it in that way. But I still think it's a niche thing. I, I feel like over the past year, I've, I've heard less and less about it. I used to read a lot of things, stories on Apple News and in my flipboard on my iPad, I'd see a lot of stories about the tiny house market. And in the past year, I bet if I did a Google's trends search using Google keyword searching on Google, I bet I would see a decline in tiny house searches, I bet. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, you know, when it first came out, it made perfect sense because we know the millennials and the generation before the, after the millennials, you know, they value experience over space. So it's logical that they would like less and less space, but maybe, you know, everything has a ceiling or a floor and maybe, um, you know, they've gotten in those things and felt like, man, I, I'm claustrophobic. You know, I just, I, I thought I wanted less space because I want to be out partying and going to festivals and, and, right. and doing stuff. But at the end of the day, I do have some downtime and, and it's driving me nuts to be in a cramped closet. Well, I mean, and look, you and I know, I mean, everything changes when you have kids, right? It's, it's great to be all idealistic and think you want to live in a shoebox and have one t-shirt when you have no children, right? <laughs> you know, and you, you can live like a hippie and think, oh, this is the way the world should be. And then guess what? Once you have a little kid that you know, needs diapers and is crawling all over the place and you're like, I need to get out of this place. I can't live in a 100 square foot place with a baby climbing all over me at all hours of the day. I can't get any work done. I'm going to go mad. You need to get out. Yeah, yeah. So to get into some specifics, it sounds like you're a rule of thumb, right? To, you know, a lot of people talk about the 1% rule. Um, some people talk about the 2% rule, which is aggressive. It sounds to me like you're, you're thinking 1.5% maybe. Like if you get a house and the rent is 700 bucks, that you want to buy it for 75% of that, which is you know, 50000 or 55 or something. Yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, that's a good way to look at it. One percent to me, one uh, percent is a good kind of starting place. I was surprised. My father-in-law uh, is from California, so he invests and buys a lot of properties through me and through my company because he owned a couple of properties in the California area. He grew up watching his grandparents or his parents own, you know, warehouses and so forth. His rule of thumb in California was the one percent rule. You know. Um, that uh, that the rent should be equal to 1% of the purchase price, right? When he saw what I was doing, he said, well, 
his starting basis was 1%. And once he found out it was well beyond that, he said, whoa, 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 wait, wait a second. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm in, I'm in. And uh, so that was a game changer for him. I like to look at it as sort of a back of an envelope kind of thing, you know, as a starting place for us to have a discussion about a property is the 1% rule. And then I try to get closer to that 2% if I can. Um, but for me, my number is around 10 to 12% net return on investment. So a okay, net so, ROI. So dumb that down for us. Explain that. So what I do is I take the purchase price of the property. Okay. So let's just say for round numbers, we're dealing with a $40,000 house. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to pull out my little handy calculator here so we can yep, play with please, real numbers. Please. Thank you. So let's say we've got a $40,000 property and it's going to cash flow 700 a month. So what I want to do to figure out the ROI on this, I take 700. Again, back of the book, quick down and dirty down and dirty numbers here. And I'm very conservative with my ROI formula. So $700 a month, this property is going to cash flow, multiplying that times 12, that gets me 8,400 bucks a year in cash flow. Now I'm going to multiply that times 0.6. The reason I'm multiplying it times 0.6 is because I'm taking out 40%, 0.4. I'm taking 40% out for taxes, expenses, uh, you know, uh, property management costs, all of that. And I have and, investor- and most and repairs, repairs. and these, most of all. In these blue-collar neighborhoods, generally these houses, right, correct me if I'm wrong, are going to be 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years old, you know, there's going to be repairs. There's going to be repairs. I make sure that when I buy it and I repair it for myself or my clients that we're, we want it to not have any repairs, major repairs for 10 to 15 years. Nice. So I put in a furnace, you know, like new furnace. A used car where they call it um, – I forget the word they use. A warranty or guarantee. Yeah, I can't, whatever. Um, but I want to make sure that, you know, we got put in a new furnace if it needs it. You know, if it's a year old, we'll keep the furnace. But they have a 10-year manufacturer's warranty on them, on the major appliances. So we put in new furnace, new water heater. If the roof has less than 10 years of life, we put a brand new roof on. Update the windows, uh, flooring, all new PEX plumbing in the property. We put in new electrical um, so that... The other stuff is cosmetic, right? You know, $700 Lowe's cabinets from, you know, cherry cabinets from Lowe's is not a big deal. Carpet paint on a tenant turnover, no big deal. When you take care of those main systems in a property, then, you're, then you don't have major repairs to worry about. So that's our goal on that. Um, and so 40% for, for vacancy repairs expenses, that's how I take out of my formula. So we multiply that 8,400 times 0.6, Gets me five thousand forty dollars a year net. Five thousand forty dollars. Okay. And that's if everything goes wrong, right? That's if yep. I've got months, a few months of vacancies. I've got a bunch of repairs that pop up. That's you know a whole bunch of problems, right? Now I'm dividing that number by the cost of the house, the all-in cost of the house, which was forty, and that's about a twelve and a half percent return ROI, net ROI. And gross on that is going to be over like I think twenty percent. Um, so that's my ballpark. I try to hit between 9 and 12% net, depending if it's a C or a B class neighborhood. You know, that's kind of my goal on every property, net, 9 and to 12%. What advice do you have for an agent that's listening to that? And they go out there and they try to make that, you know, 9, 12, and they're getting debt service, right? So they have to get a loan on it, and they're coming up negative. What's your advice? Well, then it's not a good deal. You know, if okay. you... You know, if you've got debt service on a property and you are not cash flowing at least $100 beyond your debt service, then it's not a good deal. I mean, rule of real estate investing, right? It's the, you know, it's, it's the 
it's my golden principle in real estate investing. Even if, and even if you could make the argument that even if you take out 40% and you take out your debt service, if you're cash flowing $1 over both of those leverage points, then that's a good investment, right? Because you don't need the cash now. The idea is that now I've got an asset added to my net worth column. And guess what? I get the full tax benefits of depreciation as a tax shelter for owning the whole property. Even though I've got these two pieces of, well, this, the debt service, and I took out 40% just to be sure, and I'm cash flowing $1 over all of my expenses and repair column just to make sure I'm safe, that's a good investment. Right. I, I like to be $100 over that, um, or even $200 over that, or $300 over that. But if you're negative, walk away. I mean, it's yeah, a no brainer. Yeah, Cause like he's saying, it doesn't factor into appreciation, depreciation, principal pay down, right. And everything. And, um, you know, I bet it was nice for you, you know, retiring from, uh, TV because now you get to claim the real estate professional designation on your taxes. And if anybody's listening that doesn't do that currently, um, you're an idiot. Cause there's so right. much benefits over that $1, right? You're right, because what is it? You have to show over what seven hundred and fifty hours a year as a real estate professional, something like that. I think it's yeah, yeah, something like seven hundred some hours. So, you know, that's a that's a pretty full time job, right? And if you can claim that because you're out looking for deals, you're you know analyzing deals on a regular basis, you're working with clients, you're working with investors. Guess what? The tax benefits of you being a real estate professional are fantastic. That's why you know I do it full time. My wife does it full-time. We have the LLCs set up. We're incorporated as a business for all of our business entities for our ownership of our properties. I'm not taxed the way I was when I was a paycheck employee. I'll tell you that. Yeah. 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 I mean, once, I mean, it's amazing. So Clayton, this has been awesome, buddy. I really appreciate you coming out today, spending time. I know you run busy. I know you run a huge company. I'm going to put all of Clayton's information on hybendigital.com backslash Clayton Morris. It's M-O-R-R-I-S. That's hybendigital.com backslash Clayton Morris. Clayton is going to give us a PDF of, uh, of the freedom number. Talk about this. So yeah, the freedom number cheat sheet is honestly the thing that changed my life. My wife came to me one night a uh, number of years ago and said, we can't pay our mortgage. And I said, what? I'm a network news anchor. I, why? What are we doing? What are we doing wrong? Before we were investors in real estate at a full capacity. And I said, okay, what? We, and so the freedom number cheat sheet teaches you how to look at all of your expenses in your family. Get honest with yourself. Sit down with your spouse or your partner. Pull out a bottle of wine go through your expenses, you're going to discover things like, why am I paying twice for Netflix? Why am I doing this for that? And you're going to start to see what your number is every month that you need to hit. Then we reverse engineer it. We teach you how then to go from that to buy real estate in order to cover that number. And it's a very simple process. You write that freedom number. It's the first thing we ask people at Morris Invest when we get on the phone with people, you know, what does your freedom number look like? And a lot of them will say, you know, it's seven, meaning seven rental properties would give us financial freedom. So that's what the cheat sheet teaches you how to do. Um, and it's three pages. And I think it'll really, really clear up a lot of things for a lot of people once they get honest with that. I love it, buddy. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fill it out myself tonight. I'm looking forward to it. So Clayton, thanks a lot. All of this information will be on hybendigital.com backslash Clayton Morris. And we'll put the cheat sheet on there as well, as well as in our agent toolbox, which you can get at hybendigital.com backslash toolbox. Clayton, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Pat. I really appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for listening.
This episode is brought to you in full by Rebus University, the future of real estate training. Go now to www.rebusuniversity.com and use the coupon code ROCK for 20% off your first course. Double your commissions now with Rebus University. Thank you for tuning in to Real Estate Rockstars. Please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you may be listening. If you haven't already, please give us a review. I don't care whether it's a one-star review or a five-star review. We eat feedback for breakfast, and we need your reviews. Also, the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and find me on social media simply by typing in my name. I'm Pat Hyben, and keep rocking. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.